we who have been given the right to call you Father rejoice in your great and gracious love. We were enemies, but you sent your Son to atone for our sins, to absorb your wrath, to reconcile us to you, and to give us adoption as sons into your family. You call us to love you more than our own earthly families, and sometimes our love for you is offensive to them, and sometimes it even isolates us from them. Your son experienced this himself, as we shall see today. Teach us today, correct us, encourage us, guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're coming to the end of Matthew chapters 11 and 12, and we've seen that in these two chapters, there are three sections, each divided up into three parts. And in each of those three sections, the first two parts are grim and grimmer and grimmest. They show people's responses to Jesus, and they're not good. Responses of troubled confusion, of indifference, of judgment and argumentation, and then finally, the very worst, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We are now finishing, of course, the last of these three sections, and it's the worst of the three sections. We saw the religious leaders faced with the undeniable reality of Jesus' um, miracles, seeing that people were being drawn by them to wonder if he might not possibly be the Messiah, And to shut this off, they reached for the explanation that the power for his miracles, which was given him by the Holy Spirit, was in fact given him by Beelzebul, by Satan, by the devil. And Jesus stops everything and tells them that in that they commit the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then he tells this story about the man from whom a spirit leaves, uh, an unclean spirit, And when it comes back and finds the house unoccupied and neat and tidied up, all religious and moral and ethical, but without a God inside of it, he comes back with seven worse friends. And the state of the, the latter state of the man is worse than the former. And Jesus says that's the way it's going to be with this generation. Well, each of these three sections, as I say, starts with two stories or two, two incidents that show, uh, alarming, bad rejections to Christ, but each of the three sections has a third part. And in each of the three parts, there's a depiction of God's gracious invitation still going out. In the first, Jesus says, come to me. After saying, no one knows the Father except the one to whom the Son wills to choose it, to show him. And that the Father has hidden these things from the reprobate. Then Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you. And in the third section of the second part, uh, we read of the ministry of the Spirit who doesn't crush a bruised reed, doesn't uh, quench a smoking uh, wick, but reaches out to the Gentiles and will even bring justice there. And now we come to the third section of the third part, or I should say the third part of the third section, and we see an invitation as well in it. It's the darkest of the three parts, and yet the invitation that closes it, the implicit invitation is so broad and so personal and so dear as to be a very bright, glittering gem, a star in this darkness. It will teach us much. It will encourage us. It may convict us and correct us. So let's dig in. Roman numeral one, as always, the place to start is with interpretation. Roman numeral one, interpretation. Interpretation asks, what does this section mean? Many people make the mistake of jumping immediately to what does this mean to me? Or what does this say to me? Well, we have no idea what it means to us until we know what it means. And what it would have meant if we'd never been born or had died before reading it. We need to know what it says in itself, what God meant in saying it. Then we can see what it says to us. So beginning with interpretation, first let's look at the situation. Oh, it's such a small note, it seems we might be tempted to read past it quickly, but let's not. While he was still speaking to the crowds, Matthew writes, while he was still speaking to the crowds, look, his mother and his brother stood outside seeking to speak to him. The situation is he was still speaking to the crowds. 
So here's Jesus doing Jesus things. And to do Jesus things means to teach. This is what Jesus did. He taught. You can still hear many people today, even those sadly who name the name of Christ, who disparage teaching. They don't like information downloads, they say. They don't want to be talked to. They don't want to be lectured. But what Jesus did is he taught. And what he commanded his servants to do was teach. And so here he is doing it. Uh, In Mark chapter 1, I don't know if you remember, there are many coming to him and being healed and casting out demons. And Jesus goes out all by himself to pray. And when Peter finds him, he says, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus says, let's go somewhere else and preach. And he says, for that is what I came out for. That's what I came out for. He came to preach. Mark 10 verse 1 says, The crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. He was called the teacher. This is what Jesus did. He taught. And of course, when Jesus taught, he taught as no one else had ever taught. He taught the words of God as the Son of God. He taught. And so when Jesus teaches, what does this represent? Anytime he teaches, I mean, I mean, McDonald's opens up, what's that? That's a chance for anyone to come and get a burger, an egg, egg McMuffin. When Popeye's opens, what's that? It's a chance for anyone to come and get some uh, yummy chicken or, or uh, the fish that they make. When Jesus starts doing what he does, what's that a chance for? It's a chance to hear the Word of God. It's a chance to hear the Word of God as never before. Oh, people had heard the Word of God before, but on the lips of prophets or in the reading of the Word of God, but how are they hearing it here? On God's lips. They're hearing God's word on the lips of God incarnate. Luke 5.1, different situation, but Luke 5.1 says, the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God. That's very important to get into our heads. What was going on? Jesus was still, when this incident happens, Jesus was still speaking to the crowds. And what does he speak to the crowds? He speaks the word of God to the crowds. This is what he does. Anyone who knows anything about Jesus would know this is what he's doing. You come up while Jesus is doing Jesus' things, that's what he's going to be doing. All right, now then let's look at letter B, the interruption. Verses 46b and 47. While he was still speaking to the crowds, look, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, look, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Doesn't that sound kind of funny? I just said the same thing twice, didn't I? Now, when a writer does that, what does that tell us? Well, for one thing, it tells us he wants us to look. He thinks this is a big deal. This is something to emphasize. He doesn't have bold print. He doesn't have red ink. He doesn't have italics. So he repeats it. He says it. Then he says it. He reports the man saying it to Jesus. Jesus is teaching, and his family shows up saying that we want to talk to Jesus right now. So let's look at the first thing he says. He says, look. Three times in this little section he says, look. This word look, do in Greek, it's, it's an attention getter. It, it means stop and think about this. Here's, here's something that you need to pay attention to. You need to listen up. And uh, different translations translate it different ways. Some say behold, some say look, some say this and that. The worst ones ignore it and never, never, never should do that. You know, you just about could translate it and to get the feel of it, you could translate it, get a load of this. Because that, that's, that's how it functions here. While he was still speaking, get, get a load of this. His family stands outside wanting to speak to him. He's speaking, and they show up and want him to stop and talk to them. This is a big deal. And the fact that he says it twice just shows us how incredulous he still was, however many years later, writing this down. Just think of the sheer audacity of Jesus' relatives. Think of the sheer audacity of his family. They should have been part of the listeners. They should have joined in and listened to Jesus. Or, failing that, they could at least have waited until he was done. He won't speak till the world ends. Can what they have to say wait, possibly, until he's done? Yes, it definitely could. But oh, no, no. No, their schedule needs to rule Jesus. Their thoughts need to supersede Jesus' thoughts. Uh, Notice how Matthew says, speak two times. He was speaking, and they wanted to speak to him. So, 
Jesus is speaking, but they don't want to listen. They want to do the speaking, and they want Jesus to listen. You just you need to feel that. You just need to get that. He's speaking. They're not interested in that. They have something to say. Boy, doesn't that just... I mean, just stop right there. Doesn't that just describe so many people today? You start trying to talk to them about anything Jesus says, I just don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it, but boy, they want to talk about what they what they think and what they feel and what they want and how they see things and blah, blah, blah. Well, here's his family, his family in that same place. In fact, Mark gives us a little more light on this. In Mark chapter 3, he says the reason they'd come is they'd come to seize him because they thought he'd lost his mind. Get that. You do. Behold. Get a load of that. They thought they, they judged him as being off track and they were going to fix him. They were going to set Jesus straight. What audacity. So there's the interruption. Letter C. In response to the interruption, Jesus issues a correction. Verses 48 and 49. But in answer, but he in answer said to him who was telling him, Well, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples, or he could even say over his disciples, and said, Look, my mother and my brothers. Now, it's, you don't often see physical descriptions of what Jesus does. You, you more often read the words, but this was vivid in Matthew's memory that he, he could see talking to this man who was there representing the family. Maybe did the man think he'd say, oh, my mother and my brothers? Oh, I'll just drop everything and come out. I got to hear what they have to say. But no, Jesus says, who are my mother and who are my brothers? And then to the people listening to him, he holds out his hand. He says, behold, my mother and my brothers. That's his response. Now, notice what he doesn't say and notice what he does say. What doesn't he say? Well, he doesn't say, go back to them and tell them they're not my mother and they're not my brothers. He doesn't send them, him back to disown them. What he does say is, look and see who my mother and my brothers are. So what do we see here? Do we see an exclusion? Well, it kind of ends up ultimately in this situation, depending on how they respond, because you could just as well see it as an invitation, couldn't you? If they really want to be my mother and my brothers, what they need to do, they need to come in and listen to the Word of God. They need to listen. They need to listen as I speak. That's my mother and my brothers. It's a corrective invitation, to be sure, but it is an invitation. So, after the correction, letter D, comes the declaration that is also an invitation Verse 50, the declaration that is also an invitation. The declaration that is also an invitation. For anyone who does the will of my Father who is in the heavens, he it is, there's an emphasis, he's the one, this one, who is my mother, my brother, sorry, he it is who is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying, okay, so that means that like Jacob is my brother and Amy's my mother and so and such is my sister. What, what he's saying is that anyone who does this, he's my family. He's my mother, brother, and sister. He's, he's my family. Not individually, but he's, he's my relative. He's my family. And uh, notice he doesn't say father. <laughs> he doesn't say father. He says, whoever does the will of my father who is in the heavens... He's my mother and sister and brother. Now, there's also a very important delineation there. They are counting on their physical blood relationship to him to manipulate him to drop what he's doing and come hear what they're saying. And he's saying, no, I've got to listen to, I've, I, I've got to speak the word of my father to people who want to do the will of my father. And my father is not of this bloodline. My father is my father in heaven. Doesn't that kind of take you back to the first thing we see Jesus saying ever in his life? He's 12 years old. You know the incident I'm talking about? They've gone to Passover, and he's uh, amazing the teachers of the law, and, and his family takes off home, and, and he's missing. They go back. They find him in the temple. And he just, they say, don't you know that, you're, that your father and I were looking for you? And what does he say to that? You should have known I'd be in my father's business. It doesn't mean Joseph. 
He means his heavenly father. So, he says all of these are his true family, but, but in saying that all of these are his true family, what else is he saying? Only these are his true family. So, anyone who believes and listens to the word of God, anyone who, as he says, does the will of my Father who's in the heavens, any person of that number is his mother and brother and sister. Any person. Well, you mean if he'd done terrible crimes? Any person. Black, white, yellow, brown? Any person. Man, woman, fine, upstanding moral citizen, somebody fresh from the gutter and life of desperate depredation and waste and crime? Anyone, he says. In fact, the Greek is a bit emphatic. It, it says just whoever, <laughs> any whoever, anyone whoever fits this description. He does the will of my Father who is in heaven. With that and that alone, nothing about blood, nothing about race, nothing about sex. With that and that alone, that distinguishes Jesus' family, he says. All of them, but only them. Blood relatives, not necessarily. No relation physically? Well, if they do the will of his Father who is in heaven. So you see, it's at the same time a declaration, and it's an invitation anyone, any person who does this. Well, that's the interpretation. Now, built on that, let's draw some implications, Roman numeral two, some implications. What are some of the things that this teaches us? First, regarding Mary and Joseph. So I know a number of you are of a Roman Catholic background, and and you are, uh, well, you're very intimately aware, most people are aware who aren't Roman Catholic, of a lot of false teaching uh, from the Roman Catholic Church about Mary and about Joseph. And, and one of the teachings about Mary is the teaching of her perpetual virginity. Now, don't be mistaken. All believers in the Bible believe that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. But this is the belief that she was all of her life a virgin, that she never had normal physical relations with Joseph. And it's thought that this marks her out as more holy and more sanctified. Now, what of these children? Well, these, on the one hand, they might say that brother and sister can mean other things. It can mean cousin, or it could mean stepsons. And the idea is that perhaps they were Joseph's from an earlier marriage. Yeah, that's the ticket. Joseph had been married before Mary and, and his wife something, and he had children, and then he married Mary, and he brought these children into the, into the family, and then she had Jesus by virgin birth. And of course, that is based on the book of Third Fantasies, chapter 5, well, chapter 6, verse 66. I mean, it, it, it arises from no text of Scripture. There, there isn't a syllable in Scripture that would ever Nobody, no honest reader would read it and say, you know, that that definitely says that Mary never had relations with Joseph or that Joseph brought stepchildren into the marriage. Uh, The only place it could come from is from a very unbiblical view of sex in marriage, the idea that it's something unholy. But where did it come from, though? It was created. It was God's whole idea. Sex didn't, didn't, isn't a result of the fall. It's perverted by the fall. It's, it's twisted by the fall. But sex and marriage was God's idea. It was his creation. It was good. It was holy. It was absolutely his intent. There's nothing unholy about it. So if you actually look at the text, if you were to look back at Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, and just read it normally... And when Joseph got up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord directed him and took his wife, Mary. Yet he continued not to know her intimately until when she bore a son. Now, what is your natural reading of that? He continued not to have relations with her, sexual relations, continued not to know her intimately intimately, until she had her son, Jesus. And then... Normal married relations, right? Isn't that the most normal reading? Especially if you're in any doubt when later on in that same story you read about brothers and sisters. Well, then you go, yeah, I guess I was right the way that I wanted to read that verse in the first place. She gave, a, she gave birth to Jesus as a virgin, and after that they had a normal godly marriage, and God gave them children. But beyond this, I want to say something I don't hear often said, but it should be. It's not elevating to Mary to say she is perpetually a virgin. It slanders her. 
How does it slander her? Because the normal duty of a wife and a husband towards their spouse is sexual relations. That's godly. Relations within marriage is godly. And to say that she denied him is not a compliment. It does not elevate her. It, it insults her. It slanders her. It makes her an ungodly wife. And there's no reason to believe that. In fact, the text says, sons, and he says, brothers and sisters. And if you say, well, the words can mean other things, well, most words can mean other things. Mother can mean city. Do you think it means that in this verse? <laughs> he, a city and his brothers and sisters were there to see him? No, you just look for the normal meaning of the word. And the normal meaning of the word brother is brother and sister is sister. So, Joseph and Mary. Letter B, implications regarding Jesus and Mary. Regarding Jesus and Mary. Well, Mary was a, a, a godly woman and she was a remarkably godly teenager. We've studied this in the past. Her, her response to learning this death sentence, in effect, that she was going to bear a child though a virgin... Uh, was just a model of godliness and of piety and of, of knowledge of Scripture. It was just, it was breathtaking. Uh, but she was just a woman. She was just a godly woman. She was a sinner. Uh, again, that's a false teaching to speak of her uh, impeccability. Uh, no, she was a sinner. How do I know? Well, she says in Luke chapter 1, verse 47, My soul rejoices in God, my Savior. What kind of person needs a Savior? A sinner. And she was a sinner who was saved by grace through faith just like everyone else. So what was their relationship? Well, Luke tells us that in this temple incident, he continued in subjection to Mary and Joseph as a godly child would. He honored his father and his mother. But when he became an adult and entered on his own ministry, serving the will of his father, things shifted. You see that in John chapter 2. You remember that incident. There's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And what happens? Suddenly, they run out of wine. And Mary goes up to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Nudge, nudge. And Jesus' response is, woman, what does this have to do with me? Or literally in Greek, he says, what is that to you and me? What shared interest do we have in this? My hour is not yet come. And what's her response to that? Obey your mother? Her response to that is to turn to the servants and say, do whatever he tells you. Ah, there's the, there's the example of Mary that we should learn from today. Do whatever he tells you. We should hear those words. Do whatever he tells you. Their relationship has changed. He's not under her authority anymore. He's on message, mission from the Father, but he still loves her. And what's one of the last things he does, hanging on the cross, dying in John chapter 9, what, what is one of his last thoughts on this earth? for his mother. He sees his mother there. Perhaps at this time his brothers are still not, not believers. He sees his mother and what does he do? He turns to the disciple he loved the most and he says, behold your mother. Behold your son. And entrusts her to his care. Takes care of her before he dies. So he clearly loves her dearly. He's not under her authority, but he loves her dearly. Jesus and Mary. And let her see what are some of the implications regarding Jesus and his family? Well, that's the major focus of this section. How do I know? Matthew tells me. How does Matthew tell me? Five times Matthew says his mother and his brothers. <laughs> it's just a little section, verses 46 through 50, and yet five times we read his mother and his brothers, and the last time he adds, and sisters. So that's obviously a... A, a clue that he, even, even a dull reader could not miss that this section is about the family of Jesus. But it gives us an insight into the family of Jesus that's rather startling. You know, great men have gotten through very difficult times with the support of, of their family. That they've, they've know that their wives support them and believe in them. They know their children respect them and, and uh, revere them. And they're able to get through all sorts of uh, flaming arrows from outside because they know at home they've got people who love him, respect him, have, have his back, so to speak, and embrace what he embraces. And yet our Lord was denied even that. He didn't have even that. He was despised and rejected of men, and at this point, even of his family. John chapter 7, verse 5 says, Not even his brothers were believing in him 
at that time, John chapter 7, verse 5. He didn't have the support of his family. And we see, Matthew says very vividly to us, that at this critical time, what's, what's so critical about this time? Remember where we started. Jesus is just, the, the, the nation of Israel has in effect crossed the Rubicon. It, it, it is it cast the die. They've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he says that that is characteristic of that generation, that they be forsaken of God and open to demonic influence. And at that critical time, where's his family? Well, Matthew says exactly where his family is. They stood outside seeking to speak to him. Now, don't read past that too quickly. They're standing outside. Now, he's still speaking. Now, before we get into the rest, what sorts of things was he still saying? Well, in chapter 12, verse 30, what did he say? He who is not with me is what? Against me. He who's not with me is against me. What do you say in verses 41 through 45? The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Are they outside waiting to speak to him and not listening to him while he says that? And then verses 43 through 45 speaks of the unclean spirit who simply leaves this man. And when he comes back, he doesn't find a strong man there waiting to keep him out. What he sees is he's improved himself. He's bettered himself. He's done the 12 steps. He's done this and that and the other thing, but there's no God inside of him. And so the spirit simply finds seven worse friends. And Jesus says the end of, of that man's worse than the start. And then what does he say? Words that puzzled me for years and years. seemed an odd odd conclusion to this. He says, that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. And while he's still saying those things, the, the scribes and the Pharisees come up, evidently no impact from this at all, and they say, well, we want to see another sign. They just said, their, their class anyway had just said, their, their group, their sect had just said that they got the power for his signs from the devil. But maybe you show us another one and it, it might amuse us. We might rethink, Maybe. I don't even make that promise. I shouldn't even say that. They just say, show us one. We want to see one, they say. And Jesus says, you're not getting one. This generation, the only sign this generation is going to get is the sign of Jonah. While he's saying those things, where's his family? Standing outside. Now, where are his disciples? Mark gives us a little more detail. You can infer it from Matthew, but Mark says it explicitly in Mark chapter 3. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him. Ah, this is the crowd Matthew says he's speaking to, and Mark makes it explicit. They are sitting around him. Don't, don't flit past that. They are sitting around him. And verse 34 says, he looked about at those who were A, sitting, B, around him. Literally, the Greek text says, in a circle. They're in a circle around him. And he says, behold, my mother and my brothers. So where's his disciples? Well, they're with him, like he said. They're with him, they're sitting around him in a circle, and they're listening to him. But where is his family again? Well, they're not with him. They're not with him. They're not following him, they're not learning from him. Where are they? What are they doing? What's their stance, what's their posture? Standing. Standing, what's the thing about standing? Well, if somebody's still standing, that means that they're ready to leave. They don't plan to stay. You know, I mean, I've, I've had times when I've started to tell a story or talk about something to some people I was with, and I sit down to talk about it, and I notice nobody else is sitting. And so I think to myself, all right, they don't really want to hear a very long story. I mean, they're, they're, they've got something else they want to do, right? They're, it's communicated by the body language uh, that I, I really don't, I can't stay right now. Uh, I want to stay ready to go, and as soon as you're done, I'm... I'm moving on. And so what are they doing? Well, they're, they're not sitting. They don't plan to stay. They've got something to say, and perhaps they mean to take him with them. That's, Mark suggests that. They mean to take him with them. They can't stay. In fact, you don't stay either. You, you come with us. So they're not sitting to learn. They're not committed like the disciples are. Uh, what, did he, what had he said in uh, uh, Matthew eleven twenty nine? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Were they doing that? 
No, they were ready to go. They weren't planning to stay. They were standing. And where were they standing? Outside. Outside. Not inside. Not in the house. Not in a circle around Jesus like the disciples were. Not part of the meeting anyway. Outside. And they expect him to leave what he's doing and come outside to speak with them. Now, I will tell you happy ending. Spoiler alert. They do come to believe, praise the Lord and the grace of God. They do eventually come to believe, and that's a very hopeful thing. They're very much on the wrong side of this, and yet the grace of God does change them, and they come to be on the inside. But at this point, they're on the outside. Now, this is very telling all in itself, and and interesting and sad. Sad for Jesus, sad for them. But it also has a larger message, doesn't it? If even his immediate family, his immediate blood relations needed to repent and believe in order to have a relationship with God? What does that say about the nation of Israel who think they can just boast, well, we're sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so we know we're in. And that was the teaching of some rabbis. Abraham standing at the doors of hell, making sure that no child of his goes in, because just being a child of his, you're in. Oh, but no, apparently not, huh? Apparently not if even his immediate flesh and blood relatives need to repent and believe to be with him and to be in the family of God. So what more of Israel? And you see this very much prepares us for chapter 13, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, and for the end of the gospel where the disciples are told to go make disciples of all the nations. And the nations are Jewish or... Gentile, Gentile and Jews. Jews first, but the Gentiles. So, there's a lot there. There are a lot of implications there. But now let's talk about the applications. Let's talk about the application. Roman numeral three. Now that we understand these things, assuming we do, we're ready for a clear-eyed look at, first of all, authority structures. A clear-eyed look at authority structures. Well, surely you can trust the religious leaders. I mean, after all, they're the top men, right? They're the top men. You can certainly trust the elite. You can trust the the glitterati, the celebrities of the religious world. Well, where were they on this issue? Saying Jesus performed miracles by the power of Satan. That's where they were. They were on the wrong side of the issue. They, they had utterly failed. The, the should-be religious leaders who sat in the chair of Moses, uh, by and large, I mean, there were individual exceptions, but by and large, they had failed to connect the dots, pretty much literally, given that Hebrew vowels are dots and dashes. If they were in the manuscripts of those days, uh, they failed to connect the dots. They did not listen to what Moses said, and they were not led by the Word of God to the Son of God. The religious leaders of the day had failed. But what about the first authority structure? What was the first authority structure God instituted? Was it government? No. Was it the Board of Education? No. It was the family. The first social command God gives in the Ten Commands is what? Honor your father and your mother. That's the root of all of it. But even his family had failed. Even his family at this point was on the wrong side of his ministry. They were standing outside, wanting to talk to him. So it was just like what Jesus had said, though, in chapter 10, except you just kind of don't expect it to happen to him. And yet it did. What does he say in chapter 10, verse 17 and 18? Be wary of men, for they will deliver you over into councils, councils, authorities, And in their synagogues, religious authorities, they will whip you. What? For bringing God's word? For proclaiming his Messiah? Yes, they will whip you. And before governors and even kings, you will be brought on account of me for a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. The authority structures will turn against you and persecute you, punish you, and whip you. What about my family, though? Well, verses 21 and 22. Brother will deliver brother over unto death. And father, child, and children will rise up against their parents and will have them put to death, and you will be hated by all on account of my name. Even the family. Yes, indeed. He says in verse 34 and following, Do not imagine that I came to cast peace. 
upon the earth, I did not come to cast peace, but instead a sword. For I came to divide a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a bride against her mother-in-law. And the man's enemies will be those of his household. He who is fond of father or mother above me is not worthy of me. And he who is fond of son or daughter above me is not worthy of me. So now we see that Jesus himself experienced what he warns of. He knew it even in his own family. And so the message to us clearly is we need to look to God above all. And if we must choose between family authority and civil authority and God, we've got to choose God. Yes, we obey the government as far as we can, but there is a limit to their authority. What's that limit? They can't command us to do what God forbids, and they can't forbid us to do what God commands. We've kind of, kind of experienced this in recent years, haven't we? Government says you can't meet to worship. We beg to differ. So, uh, government does not have the authority to overrule God, and neither does the family. A husband does not have the authority to tell his wife not to attend church, not to read her Bible, not to pray, not to practice her Christian faith. Husband does not have the authority. Parents do not have the authority to forbid their children from following the Lord. And if there's a choice, and our choice for God might alienate or get us in trouble with one of those, isn't, isn't the choice clear here? Doesn't Jesus make the choice very clear? And you see that it's clear in his own heart as well. So authority structures. Secondly, the nature of the true church. So many people say, well, I don't know what to look for in a church, but I know what kind of music I like. And I know what kind of decor I like. And I know what kind of makeup of people I like. I know the things that are important to me. Well, that's all very interesting and all very amusing. But what's important to God? What is the one mark that Jesus puts on his family? What is it? It's in the text. What does he say? Anyone who does the will of my Father. So what's the mark of a family of God, a local family of God, a church that's meeting as the family of God? What's the mark? What kind of music? What kind of decor? Nothing to do with that. It's do they do the will of God? Are they committed to doing the will of God? Which, of course, requires learning the will of God. So this is the quick question a Christian should ask. Not, what do I want? Am I getting what I want? Am I being made to feel the way I want to feel? But does this church do God's will? Is it committed to doing God's will? Is it a family that Jesus would own as his own family? Because we know what he looks for. And you see that in Revelation, don't you? The churches that are in trouble with him are the ones that are not doing the will of his Father. And he says, I'll remove your candlestick to them. So this is still important to Jesus, obviously. So the nature of the true church, letter B. Letter C, though, Christ's open but specific invitation. I think both those words are very important and very glorious. Christ's open but specific invitation. Now, let's consider what we learn here about the value of of relatedness, of being a relative. What's the value of it? Well, in in Christ's case, being physically related to Christ won't shut somebody out of the kingdom of God, obviously, or the family of God. But what else won't it do? It won't include them in either. Being physically related to Christ does not give them an in into the kingdom of God, and it also doesn't shut them out of the kingdom of God. And so likewise today. Does it matter whether you're by blood a Jew, an American, a Canadian, or whatever? Not one bit. Not one bit. These are all glorious distinctives of ours, but they have nothing to do with our, our relationship to God. Absolutely anyone can, can join Jesus' family. Let me reinflect that. Absolutely anyone can be part of Jesus' family if they repent and believe. If and only if they repent and believe. So you see that even being Jesus' physical relationship was not a spiritual value. That, that's obvious to you, isn't it? Oh, thank you. <laughs> and it's also, the next step is obvious that, that even being related to him immediately as his family, that was not necessarily spiritually significant. You see that, don't you? Well, then how much clearer is it today that being married to a Christian doesn't do anything to you spiritually? 
Or having Christian parents who walk with the Lord doesn't do anything to you spiritually. Or a spiritual friend or spiritual forebears. And yet, I can't tell, I've heard more than once people feeling pretty good about themselves because they're godly ancestors. Or, they're, or apparently, having a godly wife, the husband shows no signs of spiritual life whatsoever, but the wife is alive and walking with Jesus, and he evidently feels all right about that. Well, if being Jesus' brother, his half-brother, by being a child of Mary's, and as Jesus was, if being his half-brother or being his mother did not mean you were in the family of God, being married to a Christian isn't going to mean that. Being the child of Christian parents isn't going to, to mean that. If anything, it's going to make it worse for me when I stand before the judgment and uh, have to admit that I never listened to what my wife said about Jesus or my parents or my husband. I never listened. I didn't think it applied to me. Didn't think it was important. Heard it. Didn't listen. But it's not a help if I don't listen. See the condition of Jesus. What is the condition? I say it's open to anybody. I, I said the Greek is emphatic. Any, any person, any old person. But it is specific. His condition is, who will do the will of my Father who's in the heavens. Now, what is that will, though? But think about this. These people who he's describing this way, what are they doing at this time? What soup kitchen are they operating? What, what mission to Honduras or whatever are they working at that time? What, what exactly are they employed in doing at that moment? What are they doing? They are listening to the Word of God with faith. That's all they're doing. And he says, that marks them as my family. When you say, well, isn't, shouldn't we do things to serve God? Oh, absolutely. But what is the fountainhead of doing anything for God? Listening to His Word with faith. Listening to him speak and believing. Without that, there is no relationship with God. What, there's a verse even that says something like that, isn't there? Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. And what does faith do for us? We're saved through faith and through faith alone. And that faith must fix, must fasten on the Word of God. John six twenty-eight and 29 Therefore they said to him, What should we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. What does he say? That you believe in him who he has sent. John six twenty-eight and 29. This is the work of God. You believe in him whom he has sent. And you don't see that in the behavior of the family, waiting outside wanting to speak to him and tell him what's what. That's not faith. So, ritualism, formalism, sectarianism, absolutely worthless, absolute loss, absolute distraction. I have met people whose whole confidence is that their particular sect, they say, go back to the days of Jesus. Their sect started in the days of Jesus. Their particular Roman Catholics, Orthodox Church, to which I ask, how far back does heresy go? When did heresy start? Well, I see it in the, in the New Testament. Don't you? Where, where is the first people who denied the resurrection? Well, that's the New Testament. Where are the first people who denied that Jesus was bodily incarnate? That's the New Testament. Where, where were the first people who said that we're saved by grace and works? Well, that's the New Testament. So old age isn't going to work for me. What, what do you have to show me? That you're lined up with the Word of God. It doesn't matter if you've played the game of telephone for 2,000 years and the message is now so totally changed that it has no relation. I want to go back ad fontes to the source. And that, that's the only thing, because that's what doing the will of God is. It is listening to, believing, and doing the Word of God. It was then, it still is now. So, Jesus Christ's open but specific invitation. What a glorious thing. Anybody, but anybody who would do the will of His Father, just believe in Him, hear the Word of God. Finally, we see Christ's love for his own. Letter D, Christ's love for his own. J.C. Ryle says that's the whole point of this section, how dear Jesus' own are to him. He bids us love him more than anyone else, and he loves us that way too. He tells us not to let father or mother come between us and him, but he loves us that way too. 
He says we're his family. Now, how much did Jesus love his mother? How much did he love his brothers and sisters? I'm sure he loved them dearly and deeply. I'm sure no man ever loved his family. Literally, I mean this absolutely literally. I'm sure no man ever loved his family better than Jesus loved his family. And yet, he loves us in a special way. He loves us in a unique way. We're his spiritual family. We, if you are doing the will of his Father, if you've listened in faith, repented, believed in Jesus, you're walking in the word of God, well, then you're his mother and sister and brother. Hebrews 2.11 says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's Jesus, not ashamed to call us brothers. I tell you what I would be. <laughs> call me a brother? That's, that's not a feather in the cap. And yet this is the way Jesus looks at his family. He's not ashamed to call us mother, sister, brother. Now, look, this was a shocking thing to say in that day and age. It was a shocking thing to say. Your family was above all. Your family was number one. Your parents were above all. You, don't, you would not say something like that. It was a shocking thing for him to say. And yet, he said it. How dear we must be to him. How deeply Jesus must love his people. What a gem we must be to him. What, a, what an insignia. What a, what a, a lovely garland we, garland we must be to him. That he would speak this way of us in a way that shocked people. Much as he loved his spiritual family, his natural family, he loves his spiritual family more. And that means whoever you are, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus, you may be a very weak believer, you may be a struggling believer, you may be piled down deep under terrible trials and temptations right now, but you're dear to Jesus because you're his family and he's not ashamed to call you brother. Scripture says, Scripture says. Well, I think there's so many applications of this application. Uh, I mean, if Jesus' family is so dear to him, then how dear should it be to us? If Jesus prioritized his spiritual family, then how much should we uh, prioritize our family? Many Christian parents have faced this horrible heartbreaking situation and I don't know if anything can hurt like this hurts <clears throat> to bring up a child in the gospel and have that child turn from Christ embrace some sin and many professed Christians buckle at this point and sadly recently we've seen leaders who wanted to be in positions of respect and authority but when it turns out their son is homosexual or their daughter's a lesbian or go off into some sin suddenly this position they've held for years and persuaded hundreds of people to embrace, they're not so sure now. They're rethinking it. And that shows us well, who did they really love more then? Who was most important to them? Did the scripture change? Was scripture less clear than it was 10, 20 years ago? Well, no, it's not. But nobody can sympathize like somebody who's been in that situation. But still, sympathy is one thing, but agreeing is another. Yes, all of us face difficult choices as Christians, but we need to get clear in our mind from day one, and I mean that literally day one as a Christian, that when I say Jesus is Lord, that means nobody else is. And when I say Jesus is my all in all, that means nobody else can be my all in all. I love people, I can serve people, I can adore people, but nobody's in that place. He alone commands that place. How many parents tested by this buckle and show something that probably they didn't even know about their own hearts. But then on, on the other end of it, how many parents say that the family of God is dearer and yet they communicate to their children all the time that it really isn't? They, they take the world's image of what it is to be a good parent and they think being a good parent means you got to be it. Everybody's got to be in every baseball team and every soccer team and every French class and every writing class and every ballet class and every 4-H class and I'm just going to run out of things. But, but it's all that, but does your kid regularly come to the church's youth group meeting to, to make Christian friends and learn how to, be, to grow up in the Word of God? Well, no, because we've got all these other things that we do that are more important. We say to our parents by our choices and not by our words, but which are louder? 
How long does it take for a child to get the, the, to learn that, well, really, okay, church is not that important, that fellowship is not that important, that relationship is not as important as these secular relations and these secular uh, activities. And that is uh, something where the example speaks louder, perhaps, than the words. But Jesus puts a priority on his family, and I think we should learn from him to do the same. Uh, To love the Christ who loves us, we should love our family. Doesn't John say just that much? In fact, doesn't the Apostle John say that if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, then you don't really love God? Everyone who's born of God loves his brother, and the one who hates his brother is not born of God. This reflects in a very practical way. So, Jesus' true family is not those physically related to him, but those who do the will of his Father who's in the heavens. So if you're sitting here right now listening to God's word with faith as a, as a born-again believer in Christ, you're his family. Jesus sees you as his mother, sister, brother. Jesus stretches his out, out his hand to you, and he says, this is my family. He owns you as his own. And if you're not yet, if you're not a believer in Jesus, then this invitation goes out to you. You may become a member of his family. Jesus calls you, come. Will you come? You come. Will you believe in Jesus? Repent. Call on him as Lord. Throw yourself on his mercy. Tell him you want to be reconciled to God on God's terms through him, and you will trust only him to do it. The invitation still goes out take it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, sharper than any two-edged sword, living, powerful. We thank you for the love of Jesus it shows, the character of Jesus we see shining all the more brightly through it. And we pray that you will strengthen us and guide us, direct our thinking in the light of it. And oh, what a, what a wonder, what, what a glorious thought to just bask in the truth that As we have believed in the Lord Jesus, Jesus sees us as part of his family. Scripture says that by him, through him, we're adopted into your family. And he sends the spirit of adoption into our hearts by which we can cry, Abba, Father. And you're very serious about making us your own and your children. With Christ as our elder brother. And we thank you so much for that that condescending, gracious love and for the depth of Jesus' love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.